0: Well, Paul, we talked a lot about uh, some of the big virus headlines of the day, the US belatedly hitting that 70% goal for all US adults to have received at least one vaccine dose. Remember, that was one that the Biden administration that's wanted to hit a month ago. That's right. And uh, that was kind of
1: a July Fourth thing. So kind of off on that. And that just kind of goes to the issue, which is now forefront here, which is getting folks vaccinated, particularly the hesitant folks.
0: Well, let's get an update from Dr. Bruce Farber, chief of infectious diseases at Northwell Health North Shore University Hospital in Long Island, a Jewish medical center. He joins us on the phone from Manhasset, New York. Northwell is the organization that vaccinated the first person in the United uh, yeah, States with amazing. Pfizer shot. Yep. Remember, that was back in yep. December. I remember seeing video of that Paul and yep. since then they've administered over 400,000 vaccine doses to more wow. than 245,000 people. Dr. Farber, it's great to have you on the show. Can you give us an update about what you're seeing in the hospitals right now and how that compares to at other points during the pandemic?
2: Yeah, unfortunately things have been going in the wrong direction wow. as you probably know all over including uh locally. Uh hospital hospitalizations are up significantly although they still uh, are much lower than they were during any of the first two um, waves of the pandemic. Uh, to give you rough ideas, uh, we were down to really single digits in most of our hospitals, and the system had, you know, under uh, well under 100. Now we're well uh, well above that number, and we're in double digits. We still have plenty of bed capacity. It's nothing like it was, you know, uh, last year. Uh, Um, and even um, with the second wave, but things have clearly gone in the wrong direction.
1: And Dr. Farber, we've seen reports from uh, some parts of the country that are getting uh, harder hit, like uh, Florida, for example, that the vast, vast majority, north of 90 percent of the folks that are, in fact, being admitted to hospital are unvaccinated. Is that consistent with what you're seeing in your hospitals?
2: Yeah, and I would just remind you, since you mentioned it, that unfortunately, unlike the previous variants, the Delta variant, which now is causing almost 85 percent of all infections nationwide, um, is not very well inhibited after one dose. So when you're looking at those statistics, you really only need to look at people who have completed two doses of either the Pfizer or Moderna and are at least two weeks out. If you're looking at people who have received at least one dose, it's not a meaningful number anymore because that gives probably in the order of 30 percent protection, which is not even remotely close enough to stopping the epidemic.
0: That's a really good thing to keep in mind because the inoculation schedule, it takes weeks for somebody to actually be fully vaccinated after that that first shot. And it really makes us take that 70 percent goal from President Biden reach today with a with a grain of salt. How concerned are you, Dr. Farber, about people who have been vaccinated uh, passing uh, breakthrough infections to those who haven't yet been vaccinated? I'm speaking as a parent of a young child at at home. I mean, should I be concerned that I'm going to even though I've been vaccinated, I can I can pass this on uh, to my son?
2: Well, it's it's a big concern, quite frankly. Um, You know, in many ways, we're dealing with a different epidemic now. Um, It's a different virus. And a lot of the data and rules that apply to the ancestral strains of this virus um, don't apply. How big is the risk? Well, it's, I still think a lot lower if you've been vaccinated. Um, but, you know, there is uh, some concern about asymptomatic transmission, which was not previously a problem with the uh, other strains. How big a problem that, that is, it's still unclear. The data is still fuzzy, and clearly, you know, vaccination is the best we can do. Unfortunately, we've also given up all mitigation um, practices, uh, less in New York than in states where the virus is really out of control, like Florida, where they're ruling out, you know, mandatory masks, even in places like schools, and that's going to make things uh, a lot harder.
1: So let's Talk about that real quickly just you know the the children the folks under 12 and reopening schools a lot of the parts of the country are are ready reopening schools uh california starts uh, uh august 12th for example what's your thought about kids going back to school
2: well i think kids have to go back to school and should go back to school but i think they should be masked in school i think mm. the cdc said the same thing and i think it's very foolish for you know governors and other people to make laws and prevent you know schools from enforcing masking i think that's a recipe for uh disaster quite frankly so i think kids should go back to school i'm cautiously optimistic that the vaccine will be extended to five-year-old children and up by october if we're lucky um and hopefully that will roll out quickly to
0: to those kids Hey Dr. Farber, just in the last thirty seconds that we have with you, and then we're going to come back with you. I'm I'm wondering how optimistic you are that we'll start to see some sort of uh, downtrend in the coming days or, or or in the coming weeks. In instances like this wave that we've seen in the past, uh, how quickly do we get over this hump?
2: Um, well, I, I think you know it'll it'll take weeks, and then a lot of it depends on what happens in September, and you know the kids going back to school and. And the like. I mean, I think it'll slow things down, but it's been extraordinarily difficult, unfortunately, to predict um, these waves. And I, I think people thought this current one would would have been put off at least until September and October, and didn't see it coming so soon. You uh, know,
1: Dr. Anthony Fauci, yesterday on ABC, uh, he said he didn't believe lockdowns, uh, doctor, would be needed across the U.S. However, he did say things can get a lot worse. Let's take a listen.
3: I don't think we're going to see lockdowns. I think we have enough of the percentage of people in the country, not enough to crush the outbreak, but I believe enough to not allow us to get into the situation we were in last winter. But things are going to get worse. If you look at the acceleration of the number of cases, the seven-day average has gone up substantially. You know, what we really need to do, John, we say it over and over again, and it's the truth. We have a 100 million people in this country who are eligible to be vaccinated, who are not getting vaccinated.
1: That was Dr. Anthony Fauci on ABC this week, talking about, again, vaccines, lockdowns, things we kind of thought we were in, in the rearview mirror. Uh, Dr. Farber, thanks so much for joining us again. Again, when you listen to Dr. Fauci here, he's maintaining that level of caution that, again, we maybe we thought was in our rearview mirror, but it's I guess it's not.
2: Yeah, I totally agree with him. I mean, it's a combination of a lot of things, but it's the delta. It's the fact that many people immunized are now seven, eight months out from their immunizations, and we don't know the length of the immunity. It's the lack of mitigation techniques. Um, It's, you know, immunosuppressed people and a huge problem of people who are vaccine hesitant. Um, And it's all those things. And I think he's right.
0: Dr. Farber, uh, Paul mentioned uh, just a few minutes ago the idea of vaccine hesitancy within the healthcare system. Uh, we see it at uh, uh, nursing homes throughout the United States. Give us an update at, at Northwell Health, uh, vaccine uptake a, a, among people who work there. What is it?
2: Well, um, it's in the 70s, and people with, uh, in the, um, at Northwell Health believe that all healthcare workers should be vaccinated, and we are slowly moving to, to make that happen. No new hires at Northwell Health can be hired without a vaccine. Starting this week, anybody who has refused vaccine will have to be tested on a weekly basis. We are slowly moving in the direction to make it mandatory. It can't happen overnight, but it will evolve over the next few months. And we're all behind the requirement that all healthcare workers should and have a responsibility to be vaccinated.
1: Doctor, what's the what's the for the hesitant folks out there about the vaccine? What do you think is the best argument to get them over the finish line?
2: Uh, well, to be totally honest with you, I think it's um, it's some type of uh, punishment or, you know, um, for their job or for going to the movies or for going to a restaurant. We've talked to these people many times in so many different ways, and I think, you know, merely having a conversation, you know, that was fine months ago, but
0: okay.
2: at the present time it's going to require more than that.
0: We've seen so many stories in the last week, Paul, of of people. um, And New York New York Times had a deep dive into them of people saying, you know, just heart heart wrenching stories. People saying, I wish I had gotten the vaccine. I wish my fiance had gotten the vaccine. And you know, I wish relatives who've gotten the vaccine. Those people who are no longer with us. Um, Dr. Farber, do you think that that in the areas that have been hard hit? by the Delta variant, places like Missouri, Florida, uh, where we are increasingly seeing those stories, that's enough to get more and more people vaccinated because we are seeing the data from those areas show that uh, more and more people are getting vaccinated in those hotspots.
2: Well, we certainly hope that's the case. There's no question that it should push people over. I've seen many, many people in the hospital with COVID and not a single one of them hospitalized uh, states that uh, they're happy with their decision in retrospect. Mm. So I certainly hope that's the case,
1: yes. All right, so, uh, Dr. Farber, what do you think, as we looked at the U.K. and Israel on this COVID, this Delta variant, it seems to be, have a very quick surge and then a very quick decline. Is that something you think we will see here?
2: Uh, it certainly has been a very quick um, surge. Um, I hope it's a quick de- uh, decline. I think there's going to be, you know, pockets. It's going to come and go, and again, um, I'm not sure it's going to die declined so quickly in certain states, uh, you know, Missouri, Florida, Texas, some of the others where the total number of people who have gotten two vaccinations is still significantly below 50%. It's hard for me to understand how those rates are just going to plummet when you have those numbers.
0: Yeah, pretty remarkable to uh, see how long uh, the vaccine has been available here in the United States and still so many people who uh, have not yet uh, taken it. Dr. Bruce Farber, thank you so much for joining us. He's chief of infectious diseases at Northwell Health's North Shore University Hospital and Long Island Jewish Medical Center. Joined us on the phone from Manhasset. Well, here's my question, Paul. Yes. Does the convenience store need to be disrupted?
1: I didn't think so until I read this story, and
0: I'm still not sure.
1: It does, so I'm not sure, but a uh, great story in the Bloomberg Business Week.
0: Let's put it to Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us on the Access Line from Massachusetts. Also joining us from across the pond, Alex Webb. He's my colleague at QuickTake, a Bloomberg QuickTake reporter. Joel Weber, uh, $3 billion of venture capitalist cash going into trying to get you bananas and beer within 10 minutes.
3: What's the story here? It's a great combination, right? Billions <laughs> it's for bananas of and The breakfast of champions. Um, and, and if anything, I actually feel, I feel, I feel like the three billion is actually maybe on the, on the budget side. But, <laughs> but basically, um, Alex did this great story. It's our back page in this uh, forthcoming issue. And you knew that. I knew that already. You know, delivery business was huge, and we saw that once with restaurants but then we've increasingly seen it into groceries. But what Alex pointed out was that actually there's even a new type of grocery delivery that I'll have him explain here that, that's not via the grocery store so much. So, Alex, what do these stores look like? So they're called dark
4: stores, and uh, basically they're warehouses, quite small warehouses, probably about the same footprint as a classic bodega, but they're away from Main Street. They're in places where rents are a little bit lower, and you'll see, you know, lines of, of deliverers queuing up there to pick up these orders that you can make through an app. And they promise to have, you know, some of these items we mentioned, whether urgent need for a, a bottle of wine late at night or, or perhaps um, bananas or or, or candy or, or crisps, sorry, chips. And they promise to have it at your front door within 10 yeah, minutes. Yeah, don't then. forget this your audience, Alex, right okay? <laughs> we
0: product. don't know what crisps are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, my apologies.
4: Chips. <laughs> so, let's, let's split the difference.
0: Uh, so I, I wonder what the economics of this are, because you go into your story about how uh, somebody who's actually delivered for or driven for, for services um, is analyzing the numbers here. Uh, does this does this work from a profit perspective?
4: So it looks like it could. Uh, you know, If sort of all things being equal, if they don't overspend on things like marketing and they, there is not an untenable level of competition. The actual steady state economics of this are quite promising. And that's not brilliant news for your, for your local neighbourhood convenience store. But that is the key, key question here, because there is, as, as you said, so much money being poured into it from venture capital or from venture investors. And, you know, in cities like London, there are about a dozen of these companies. That is clearly unsustainable. And if it is such a good business, there's always the risk that the supermarket operators, they recognise a threat. And then, with their huge advantages in terms of costs, because they have massive chains of supermarkets, and so they can sell the groceries for cheaper. If they all pile into the space, then it was, there's no way that it can become a, 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 a profitable business.
1: And Alex, the first thing that kind of jumped out at me when I read your story, from a risk perspective, um, is Amazon. Um, what? How are how are they thinking about this business? Because I know they've thought about it, and I'm wondering if the the good folks here are in this uh, these little delivery businesses are thinking about Amazon as well.
4: We've seen some interesting moves from Amazon because they invested in the company in the UK, Deliveroo, which does food delivery. We've also started to see some whispers that they're trying to charge more for delivery of whole foods, which suggests they're struggling to make the economics work. Um, They have the advantages in terms of scale. The problem is with this, it does require capital, and it does require having local um, dark stores, and they need to be, you know, sort of every couple of miles in a given city now obviously Amazon doesn't have a problem with access to capital but it is a capital intensive business so in a sense you could see it being adjacent to what they do but it's not something they could readily do with the kind of delivery networks they already have so yes it's a threat we don't think they're going into it just yet
3: so Alex I mean this this plan this business model uh, uh, works really well in big cities, and you're in London and in New York on the subway. I've seen a ton of these ads. Uh, you know, this uh, uniquely big city, almost right, to to be able to pull this off um, at the at the scale that they that they need to. And I and I'm wondering, like, what are the limits to how much money um, VC will actually end up pouring into this, since there's already so many competitors. It, it is a good question. Uh, There's still plenty of markets where this doesn't have penetration.
4: You know, we're seeing it in London, we're seeing it in New York, we're seeing it, interestingly, in Berlin. There are other places, perhaps, in Paris and then secondary cities in, in, you know, the U.S. and and U.K. where they could have a crack at it. Um, It is partly dependent on those steady-state economics. You know, if the competition starts to drop off, we start to see a wave of mergers We've started to hear whispers that these companies, as they seek to raise new money, are struggling a little bit over the past month or two. So perhaps they're recognizing that it has been swamped. And we're also seeing lockdowns are easing. And that is the big challenge. Can they continue on that growth trajectory they've really enjoyed in the past 18 months if uh, people aren't uh, working from offices, uh, aren't working from home anymore? They're working from offices, which means they're not going to have stuff delivered to the office and they can stop off on the way home with the shop.
3: You know, you said something else in the, in the article that I thought was really interesting just about sort of the, the life cycle um, for VCs because VCs have obviously spent much of the last decade and in change investing in things from, you know, call it Uber or Airbnb. What is, what is the shift in strategy look like from your perspective?
4: Yeah, typically, they invested in platforms, sort of three-sided marketplaces, where in theory it's a it's a low, it's not a capital-intensive business. You're working as sort of a catalyst, connecting a customer to someone providing a service. Now, what we actually started to see recently is they've invested in um, businesses that do require capital intensity because they perform well on the stock market. That actually Uber has continued to be a capital-intensive business because it has high marketing costs.
0: I do encourage everybody to check out that story and more. Uh, it's in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week. It's available online now at Bloomberg.com. That's uh, Alex Webb. He's uh, joining us from London. He's quick take reporter, my colleague now. Also joining us, Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He's joining us on the remote from Massachusetts. You can also get the new issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. It's available on newsstands online at Bloomberg.com businessweek and, of course, on the Bloomberg terminal.
1: Well, you know, you think about some of these big Chinese companies that have raised capital in the U.S. over the last several years, and I think about Alibaba. That's a company I know very well, followed it since its beginning. But there's, of course, a whole slew of, of these big Chinese companies, and it's been a play on the growth of China, and they've been so uh, successful over here. But in the back of everyone's mind, there's this thing called China risk. At any given time, uh, the government of China could put the kibosh on the whole thing. And uh, I think we're starting to see a little bit of that. Andy Brown, he's editorial director. Director, uh, for the Bloomberg New Economy, that focuses exclusively on China and Asia, does do some extraordinary work. There, he joins us on the phone from New York. Andy, talk to us about what you're seeing in China. The government's cracking down, and it's not just Alibaba. It's not just DD. It's educational sectors. I, I just don't know what's next. What do you think the government's up to?
5: You know, you you, you talk about risk, um, and it's true. This is now political risk. And investors are going to have to get their heads around that. Look, we've seen it in before. We've seen this before with the government trying to put the kibosh on particular abuses within industries. So they did this with the gaming industry a couple of years ago when they figured out that kids in China were spending way too much time playing online games. Um, But this is something very different in terms of scale, its scope, intensity, severity. We have never seen anything like this before. This isn't just the government correcting abuses. This is the government saying, we have a new system of economic management here, and it's driven by a political process. And this political process is reflective of our shifting priorities. We are concerned about social welfare. We're concerned about workers. We're concerned about inequality and you guys the private sector need to work with us on all these issues get with the program or get out of the way
0: what is the ultimate outcome of this though andy i mean is it is are those something are those things that the the chinese government can actually accomplish i mean you say that the government is concerned about about workers rights and there is so much criticism about the way that that workers are treated in china
5: Yeah, so they have a legit they have a legitimate Point that, in almost every case where they 've taken action against Chinese tech companies there's some kind of abuse going on, so you know who can deny that China 's data platforms are abusing their monopoly positions and squeezing out smaller competitors and you know regulators in the United States wish that they might have powers more akin to Chinese regulators um, so that they could put an end to all these abuses um, you know they, they The issue, though, is 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 how you go about doing this and and closing down an entire industry as they just did with online education, um, you know is is telling is telling investors, you've got to now you have to now assume with a, a, a whole new level of risk. And the question they face the the, the the big question now is, are Chinese stocks investable or not? Clearly, in the education space, the answer is no, and and the, the, the jury is out on, you know, on many other Chinese industries which face similar so-called rectification.
1: Yeah, it's Andy. You know, we, we've heard from a lot of emerging market fund managers who are saying basically, yeah, the game has changed. But the reality is, I can't not invest in China. It's such a big part of the various indices uh, that my bench that I'm benchmarked against, and it is historically been such a big part of the market. I have to be there. But I'm thinking that okay, but I'm not going to pay anywhere near the multiples I paid before this. Um, is, is the Chinese government, did they run the risk of kind of overstepping?
5: Yeah, they do. And so, you know, if, if you're going to go into the Chinese market now as a portfolio investor, you need to be aware that it isn't the market that is shaping the outcomes of the companies that you're investing in. Increasingly, it is the government. And the government is shaping it according to political priorities. They're the ones pulling the levers. They're the ones turning the dials. Now, if you, if you, if you can get used to that, and if you, can, if you think that you understand where the political priorities of the government lie, then good luck.
0: So what does it mean for individuals who want to invest in China? Should they just think about this in the context of, okay, well, there's going to be a discount on me buying ADRs of, of Chinese stocks, or is this, should they have to be prepared for the worst to happen, that their equity uh, state could actually go to zero? Well, they could, they, they, they must be prepared for that, because that- I guess all equity investors the, should be prepared happened. for that, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> it is their equities yeah,
5: well, could, after all. Yeah, you know, if, if you look, so what, what, are, what, are the, what are the smart investors in, in, in China up to? Um, you know, I was reading a speech over the weekend that was made recently by really one of the best and most successful venture capitalists in China called Eric Lee. And he said, you know, um, I've been reading copies of Chiusher. Chiusher is, is the leading theoretical magazine of the Chinese Communist Party, and it's where you find all of Xi Jinping's speeches. And essentially he's saying, I have found my investment thesis. Um, in, in the thoughts of President Xi Jinping. And you should, too. You should be studying this magazine. If you want to know where right. China is yep. going, if you want to know what your risk is, understand politics.
1: Uh, just some uh, headlines breaking across the Bloomberg terminal. Uh, GOP Senator Lindsey Graham, he tests positive for COVID. That's just coming across the Bloomberg. We'll have more coming up. Andy, just real quickly, uh, 30 seconds. What's the next step for China? Do we expect them to just pick another industry?
5: uh yep um look out watch out for the property sector that's a far bigger driver of inequality than than uh, education ever is uh look out for healthcare you know they're trying now to convince wall street the uh, china securities regulatory commission that investments are safe the problem is it isn't those guys who are driving investment decisions in china it's the politicians
0: Andy Brown is Editorial Director at Bloomberg New Economy. Uh, Andy, thank you so much, as always, for taking the time. Well, it is Merger Monday for sure. Big M&A trade in the fintech
1: space. Square, the e-payment company Square, buying Afterpay for $29 billion, presumably to tap some of those younger users. But how much younger are they looking for Toddlers in their cribs. I'm not sure where we'll to get the the latest here. Julie Chariel, she covers all things fintech. She's a senior analyst for fintech and payments for Bloomberg Intelligence. Bloomberg Intelligence is the investment research arm of Bloomberg LP. Uh, they have about 300 analysts around the world covering 2,000 companies, about 130 industries. Absolutely go-to place for all your investment research needs. BI go. Julie, talk to us about this deal. This is big. I did not see this coming. Talk to us about Afterpay. What is Afterpay? What does it do
6: for Square? Yeah, so Afterpay is one of the largest buy now, pay later firms out there. It was one of the um, early companies, Pioneer. Um, Essentially, they do installment payments. So if you want to buy something, maybe you're a Gen Z or a millennial, you can't afford it today, you can buy it with Afterpay and pay for it over about four installments two weeks apart.
0: And Square shareholders uh, seemingly... Like yeah, they like the, this deal. <laughs> yeah, they like this deal. I think that they they it seems like they they think that they got a deal. Uh Square shares up more than 10% right now. So let's go through some of these numbers here Julie because uh it's a big deal but it could have been bigger. So this is a 31% premium on Friday's closing price which was at $96.66 Australian but at is still significantly less than what Afterpay was trading at back in February when it reached a high of $158.47 Australian. So are Square investors saying, hey, we got a great deal here?
6: Um, You know, I think that Square investors are breathing a sigh of relief that Square has caught up and now has a position in buy now, pay later. You know, we're so used to Jack Dorsey being this pioneer and his visionary and being always one step ahead um, of the other companies in fintech. And then this time around, he's playing defense. Um, so, you know, PayPal's already there. They've had great success. Um, Shopify teamed up with a firm, which is one of Afterpay's closest competitors. So all the Shopify merchants can offer buy now pay later. Apple just announced a couple of weeks ago, it's getting into buy now pay later. And for a year, we've been asking Square. Hey, what are you doing in buy now pay later? <laughs> um, and so, you know, this this to me is a defensive move as they've really seen the competition move ahead, do really well. Consumers want this product, merchants want this product, um, and Square had to pay up. Now, the valuation is it's a premium. It is not as much as as these stocks were trading at. All of fintech was higher back in February. Pretty much all of fintech has, has corrected a bit since then. So this is where the market's at right now.
1: All right. So I get a little nervous when this whole buy now, pay later thing. It seems like it might be introducing. Thank you, Paul. Uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm one of those people that pays my Thank credit you. card bill in full every month. Yeah, credit um, card companies don't like you. I know. They don't. So talk to us about kind of the credit risk that uh, Square may be assuming with this business model for Afterpay.
6: Yeah, so the credit risk has always been the biggest concern about buy now, pay later. And what we've seen really throughout the pandemic when this form of payment became really popular um, is that there hasn't really been an issue. Um, non-performing loans, you know, late payments, those kinds of things have not been a problem for these companies in the past year. And they have been giving out more and more credit. Um, a big part of it is just about the way the business model works, especially after pay. So it's going after pretty low-ticket items, usually a hundred or at least definitely less than two hundred dollars, spread out over four payments, and they're giving it to people who have proven that they can pay. So they'll start out with a very small amount of credit granted, you know, sub hundred dollars, um, and then as that person builds up a track record of um, of paying their paying their installments on time, they'll continue to grant them more and more credit to the point that P, that some of their biggest consumers. Um, have used the system 20, 30 times a year. Um, so they had some good visibility and they've been very careful about who they grant credit to small bits at a time.
0: Uh, Julie, uh, are, it's so interesting because a firm in the wake of this news hired by more than 14.6%, uh, I guess, validating the space. But I'm, I'm wondering what this means for traditional financial institutions, for traditional banks. I mean, are they losing out here by not offering this type of service?
6: Yeah, so the big the big banks who are card issuers are beginning to get into buy now, pay later. Um, tri- primarily, they're doing it with their credit cards. So they'll allow you to pay in installments on your credit mm. cards. And they'll look to give you a better deal, give you a break on a late fee or, or late payment, something like that, give you a little bit of wiggle room. So they're starting to go there. Companies like Visa and MasterCard are helping them, right, as being providers to the banks. But really, I do think that the, the biggest risk from buy now, pay later, generally speaking, is to the idea of credit cards, right? If you can extend your payments over time without paying interest, um, without um, having such onerous lay fees and that, and that fear of missing um, a payment and what it can do to your charges and to yep. your credit, it's gonna become that much more popular. So that's where the big- right. is, that's, is, It's the, the, an
1: amazing story, amazing part of the FinTech space. Julie Chariel, thank you so much for joining us, Senior Analyst for FinTech and Payments for Bloomberg Intelligence.
5: This is the drive to the close.
0: That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Well, here we are already on the first day of trading of August. uh, Just about 10 minutes, a little over 10 minutes away from the market close. The Dow, the S&P 500, and the NASDAQ all in the red, though the NASDAQ is Pretty much flat, as we did just hear from John Tucker. Joining us now to help us make sense of it is Sean Cruz, Senior Market Strategist at TD Ameritrade. He joins us on the phone from Chicago. Uh, Sean, your note today, not quite the dog days of summer. Uh, Are you sure?
7: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it certainly, I, I think, is going to be one of those situations where if you're expecting a traditional August, you're probably not going to get that, and that's just because although we are coming out of, I'd say, that the meat of earnings season and that we've heard from a lot of the financials, industrials, and the mega-cap tech companies, there's just still a little bit of, of overhang that I really think is preventing this market from making a major move in either direction, and you could get more clarity on that. Um, in the the days and weeks to come. And I think once the market gets a better feel for really what the impact of the Delta variant is going to be, you could see a, a, a sizable breakout in either direction, just depending on what that is. I think right now, we've gotten past the panic and fearful view of of what the delta variant can be and we're saying it's going to be uh, it's not going to be a showstopper it's not going to be something that, that definitely sinks the ship but it's it's certainly a headwind and now I think the market's trying to figure out just how big of a headwind um, it is going to turn out to be.
1: Sean yeah I want to stick with earnings here um, we're about a third of the way through and there's a lot of folks out there that are concerned about valuation in this market and uh, you, and kind of saying hey but don't worry uh, corporate America, and, and, and it's going to earn its way into these multiples. Do you feel comfortable with that kind of rationale?
7: I think so. And I think if you look at it really where some of the performance is starting to tilt, it's no longer um, sort of these these high volatility type names. It's actually shifting back into some of the more um, low volatility but high still still high levels of growth um, and also very good quality of, of growth too where it's not um, you know all over the place uh, quarter to quarter it's also not reliant on a, a lot of intangible uh, changes or um, adjustments when they get to that earnings number so I do think the market is maybe going to shift its focus and look at uh, into some of those more low vol high quality names moving forward because I do think incrementally these these large gaps up that if you're someone who's just gotten into the market over the past year or so you're you're not used to seeing a market that sort of grinds or you're not used to to going after names that aren't making these these massive run-ups on a monthly or quarterly basis i think there is going to be a little bit of a shift towards some of those more low volatility but higher quality names
0: uh sean uh what derails the market this month or in the remainder of 2021
7: um there's there's really two things. One, I, I think what is going to be coming up from um, the, the Fed when we get the, the big meeting this month. And I think everyone's really trying to get a sense for not only what the Fed is going to do in of itself, but just central banks around the world. There is a little bit of a decoupling going on in terms of central bank policy. And I think that will introduce some volatility, especially on the international front. Um, so, so look at some of those multinational names as well. Um, but I also think really just this Delta variant. And the question right now is, is it's just going to be a pop and then we come back down and we're not going to get the corresponding hospitalizations and and let's really hope we don't get the corresponding um, levels of fatalities. But I do think that is... Probably the key item the market is focused on right now is what should we be making of this Delta variant? What is actually going to happen from um, an an official standpoint? Where are we going to get more restrictions, more mandates? Is this going to maybe delay the labor market recovery? There's a lot of what ifs about this Delta variant, and unfortunately, we're just going to have to probably give it um, another week or two to really get a better sense of which way that's going to break.
1: Sean, you know this. uh, We had a probably almost a year ago, um, I would argue maybe close to it, a nice rotation into the more cyclical parts of this market, You know, whether it's energy or financials and even the smaller caps. And I know a lot of folks don't have a lot of experience with a lot of those sectors. They've just been long tech for a long time. Um, what's your sense of the, the legs of that type of rotation trade?
7: So one thing we're, we're talking to clients, we're actually hearing from clients, is, is really where should I be right now? And, and you point out that where we're at just in terms of valuations and how far things have run. And what we're saying is, look, you're not going to have the clear-cut trade. Stay-at-home. Here's the stay-at-home names that you need to be in. All right, we're reopening. Here's the reopening names that you need to be in. I think with valuations, where we're at right now, where the market's gone, we're out of um, – sort of this this fast-paced recovery, and we're probably going to be into a more moderately um, sized um, expansion period. So when you get into that and you just have some of these trades that have have run the way they have, usually a more balanced approach um, is is the better place to be. So you still want to be in equities, but you don't really want to be so heavily concentrated in one trade versus another. So right now, just a a generally more diversified approach. But remaining in equities, I think, is the place to be. And we have seen our
0: What about sorry? What about a little cash to have on the sidelines for that for that pullback? I mean, I know that we're talking market timing here, but and that's something that most people do not recommend. Uh, Can you think it can be done in this market?
7: I would not want to try and overly time the market you always want to keep some cash on hand if there are a few specific names that you are looking to, to buy and, and maybe on some of the pullbacks Amazon's a, a pretty good example you know in a, a pullback like we saw on Amazon maybe use that as an opportunity to go in there and pick up a few shares um, but by and large we're, we're seeing clients still want to be in this market and they've actually moved out of fixed income which we did see them going into fixed income a little bit in prior months they've, they've started to rotate out of that fixed income, and go really back heavily into equities. So a, a little bit of a cash on the side if there is some sort of a pullback is, is where you want to be. Mm-hmm. But if you look back over the past year, if you were waiting for that monster pullback to maybe get some buying opportunities like you would have had last March, probably not going to get that again.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I'd love to get a sense of where you think the next 10% will come from. Will it be 10% up or ten percent down, because I think a lot of folks feel like, boy, that next ten percent could be a move down
7: yeah i actually I see the opportunity for um, that next ten percent uh, to come on the upside, and the reason why is I think markets right now we're starting to to put the, the fast, robust recovery in the U.S. behind us and then start overlaying that on some of the other global economies and saying, look, once they start getting vaccinations out there, they start getting things reopened and, and they really get their economies fired back up again. We can expect more of a, this, this synchronized global recovery. I think this Delta variant certainly put a, a little bit of a dampening effect on that. So I do think once we can get through this Delta variant, soon we do, I would see the next 10 percent to yeah. be on the upside as we start to see global economies start to get the experience that the U.S. had over the past year. Hey,
0: Sean, so. we only have 30 seconds left, but I mean, what is the what is the signal that the bond market is sending right now? Is it telling us economic growth is a serious concern?
7: Um, I really think right now the, the bond market, there's a lot of interesting things going on. We have the Treasury refunding announcement coming up here, and they're expected to pull back a lot of uh, the, the supply they're putting out there, which could offset um, any sort of tapering from the Fed. I don't know that the Treasury markets, because there's so mm-hmm. many things structurally going on, is telling us that gl- growth is about to fall off. Right. I think it's it's really just, to me, saying that there's like, policy uncertainty mm-hmm. maybe is coming off the table, because the Fed's in a pretty good job, right. um, so more or less of... of signaling what they're going to be doing. So I don't know that there's really a major warning sign coming from the fixed income market just yet. Sean
0: Cruz, Senior Market Strategist at TD Ameritrade, joining us on the phone from Chicago.